Good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel, we'll be looking at the last four chapters in the book of Daniel. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to come together uh, without fear of persecution to study the word. I pray that you would remove from my preparation and notes anything that you uh, do not want and that you would include the things that you would like us to see and to know about your word. Please give us alert minds and receptive hearts to what you have told us in your word. Help us to understand the things that have been written here. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapters 9 through 12. If we, if we looked at only the things that were irrefutably clear in Daniel... Uh, we could get through these chapters in about five minutes. And if we looked at absolutely every opinion of every possibility for each verse, it would take us weeks and weeks and weeks. So I'm going to try and find a middle ground there uh, where we look at a few things and give them uh, an idea of what it seems the scripture is saying there. So let's start in Daniel chapter nine. We're going to read the first three verses in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I hope you can see that font. Um, the time period that's given to us here is roughly 538 or 536 BC. Daniel was taken into captivity uh, approximately 70 years prior to this. And he was well versed in the scriptures. And so he knew from the prophet Jeremiah that this 70 year period was about to be completed. Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12 says this whole land shall be uh, this, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king, not the kind, the king of Babylon and that nation. And then again, in chapter 29, it says, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Daniel was very familiar with the word of God, and he knew that this 70 year period was coming to a close. And so what does Daniel do? He believes what God has said through the prophet Jeremiah, and yet his response is that he turns his face toward the Lord and he makes requests by prayer and supplications with sackcloth and fasting and ashes. 
So even though he knows God's plan and that it's it's not going to change, he still continues to petition God. He knows what God has promised. He knows the punishment was coming to an end, and yet he is in sackcloth and ashes, still in repentance for the things that they had been punished for. Even though they were coming to the end of this punishment, he continues to repent and acknowledge. God has commanded us to pray, to take our requests before him, and sometimes Maybe we feel like it has no purpose, uh, there's no meaning to our prayers. Or we've heard it, maybe you've heard it said that if God is sovereign, what's the point of prayer? But, but far from making prayer pointless, the sovereignty of God is the only thing that gives prayer purpose. Why would you pray if he wasn't sovereign? And so even though we may know some of the plans that God has, he's revealed some of his plans for us and Uh, Even if we have something so clearly here, it is still our call and our command to seek the Lord. And we can take a look at the key characteristics of how Daniel was praying. He honors God throughout these these verses here. Chapter 9, verses 4 through 19. He calls the the Lord great, awe-inspiring, faithful, righteous, compassionate, forgiving, mighty, renowned. And he also acknowledges the guilt of his people. He refers to himself and to his people as sinful, wrong, wicked, rebellious, disobedient, ignorant, shameful, disloyal, law-breaking, stubborn. In verse 18, I think is such a a pivotal verse in this passage, one of the most beautiful verses in in the entire Old Testament, and if not the whole Bible. Daniel says, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And we know this. This is a a teaching that we would normally find in the New Testament, or or we we would look to the New Testament for this teaching, right? That it is grace that has saved us through faith, and not of our own works. It's nothing that we've done. We've not done anything to earn the favor of God, to earn righteousness. But it's completely because of his mercies. So we see that the Bible is cohesive, right? It's not this different teaching in the Old Testament, now this teaching of faith and grace in the New Testament, but rather throughout the scripture we see that it is always because of his great mercies and not our righteous deeds. The next few verses see what happens in response to Daniel's prayer. We'll read verses 20 through 24. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning Uh, Gabriel had appeared to Daniel in the chapter prior um, to explain to him the the vision that he'd had there um, about the goats and the rams and various horns that were emerging. I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, 
I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Gabriel says that he was on the way from the moment Daniel had started praying. One, one commentator said that it took Gabriel three minutes to get from heaven to Daniel because uh, he had read the, the, the prayer in Hebrew and it took him about three minutes to get through it. So he said it was a three-minute journey for Gabriel uh, to come to Daniel. And, and he introduces a prophecy about Daniel's people. Now, that's a very important theme throughout this passage. Daniel's people. There are some that will, will go through this, these, these chapters and apply them to the church or say that these things are directed uh, for us and things that we will experience. But throughout the passages that we'll be looking at, Daniel's people are referred to. And so we understand that these prophecies are things that are relating to and occurring to the Jews, the Israelites, Daniel's people. Now, the 70 weeks, it's a difficult phrase to translate. A good way to understand it or to translate it, if we were going very literally in the Hebrew, is to see it as 70 periods of seven units of time. Okay, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. That doesn't really tell us uh, what that means. So seven units of time has been translated weeks. So 70 weeks, right? But in the language, the word that they use there for for units is something we can think of sort of like the word we use for dozen, right? Um, A dozen what? Right? If I said you were going to die in 10, 10 seconds, 10 years, you know, it doesn't really give us the unit itself. And so seven Units of time is not explicitly clarified here. But we're going to look at a few things that help us understand that that period of time, those seven units of time. And it seems to be the safest conclusion that this would be referring to years. So seven periods of seven years. Well, why is that? Well, on the surface, the context would make years the apparent understanding of the passage, right? What was Daniel just praying about? Seventy years. He had just come through 70 years of the desolations of Jerusalem. And now Gabriel introduces these seven, 70 periods of seven units of time. So years was the theme at the time that this was given to Daniel. But we can also know that this is not just some forced opinion to make the scripture say what we want it to say. Because elsewhere in the scripture, this has occurred. In Genesis 29, Laban uh, refers to a week 
to mean seven years. So we know that in Scripture, weeks have the potential to mean seven years. Now, as we'll look as we go on also, the first 69 weeks that are described here seem to be fulfilled in terms of years. Uh, I forget. I think that's 483 at that point. Yeah, 483 years. And so based on how history seems to align with what's described in these 69 weeks, it would seem very clear that these weeks are periods of seven years. But also, Daniel describes, the book of Daniel describes half of a week, two different times. Once in terms of, once as half a week, and then once in terms of days. We'll look more closely at these verses in a moment, but I want to jump ahead real quick to verse uh, 27. It says, In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, an abom- of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. And if we look ahead to chapter 12, verse 11, it says from that time or, or from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. So these refer to the same events. We can see uh, the end of the sacrifice and the abomination of desolation is mentioned both times. One referred to as the middle of the week and the other referred to as twelve hundred and ninety days, which is almost exactly uh, three and a half years. So understanding the seven periods of seven units of time to be four hundred and ninety years is the framework from which we understand this passage. We just read a little bit of verse 27. Let's read 25 through 27 of chapter 9 here. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So we're given a a span of seven and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, giving us 483 years that we're working with. And that is uh, said to be between the command or between the decree and the coming of the Messiah. The city, uh, we're going to look at different, uh, what, what was that command that was given, right? Well, the command was for the return of the exiles and giving them permission to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, the key, it's a key term here where it says to rebuild, to restore and build Jerusalem. 
the city itself, not just the temple. Uh, we'll look at that in just a moment, but that's, a, that's something important to keep in mind. Um, and then 62 years of difficult times until the Messiah comes. Now, we can assign those seven years to the rebuilding of the city because it took uh, or seven weeks because it took 49 years for the city to be rebuilt. But the question is, from which decree? There are several different opinions of which decree, because there are several different decrees that went out for the people to return uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, several throughout Ezra and then this one in Nehemiah, I believe. Uh, the one here in Nehemiah is the only one of those decrees that actually specifically mentions rebuilding the city. The rest of them just refer to rebuilding of the temple or the house of God. So this this reference in Nehemiah seems to be the, the most closely aligned decree to return and rebuild the city. And so if we were to use that decree as our starting point, we know 62 weeks or 434 years after the city is rebuilt, the Messiah will come now. Calculating ancient calendars precisely is very difficult. You've got leap months, you've got Jewish years, you've got you know different types of years. So this is a very hotly debated timeline. One plausible option is that from the decree that went out, 49 years passed and the city was rebuilt. 434 years would be uh, approximately the time that Christ enters Jerusalem for the first time officially uh, as as the Messiah. Some would argue that uh, the actual time referencing referenced here for the Messiah to come is at, at Christ's baptism. The main point is that Christ came, right? And he came and he was uh, rejected as the Messiah, but he did come as the Messiah. So some 434 years after the rebuilding of the city, the Messiah does come. Two things that we see in the passage here that need to happen after the 62 weeks. It says the Messiah will be cut off and the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. In verse 26, it says, after the 62 weeks. So remember, we've had the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, giving us 69 total. And it says, after the 62 weeks, so that's after the first 69, Messiah shall be cut off, and the, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. After has no need to be immediate, right? I'm going to go home after church, but it's going to take me some time to get there, right? So things that happen after this first 69 weeks, there's some wiggle room as to when they can be accomplished, linguistically at least. We know that the Messiah was cut off and not for himself, right? He was crucified, depending on, again, how you put your timeline. It's somewhere in the early 30s A.D., and about 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus the Roman. So right there, we see the city and the sanctuary being destroyed and the Messiah being cut off over 
a 40 year period. Well, 40 is greater than seven. So we know that this wasn't fitting into a week. There's there's some sort of gap that seems to be apparent here because the two things prophesied that to come after the 62 weeks have spanned a 40 year period. In verse 26, where it said the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary is an interesting uh, phrase there. It's, it's the people of the prince to come, uh, not necessarily the prince himself, which we'll look at who that prince would be shortly. Verse 27 well, the end of 26 and the start of 27, after the Messiah is cut off and after the city is destroyed, till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Some, many, many translations would, would phrase that until the end, war and desolations are determined. Then he shall come, confirm a covenant with many for one week. It's, it's fairly safe to say that wars have not ended uh, and that this covenant does not seem to have even still yet occurred. And again, we'll see more about that in in a moment here. Six things are described in verse 24 about these 70 weeks. Six things that are going to happen in this 70 week period. It says to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Well, what do those things all mean? It would it seems that the to finish the transgression would be that the, the Israelite rejection of the Messiah will end. To make an end for sins, right? The Messiah has been cut off, but the end of sin has not been accepted. Especially, again, this is, this is to the Israelite people, right? This is to the Jews. They have not accepted the sacrifice that has come. To reconcile iniquity, again, the death of Christ, not yet accepted by the Jewish people. To bring everlasting righteousness. That's the coming kingdom of Christ. And we, that has not yet been implemented. To seal up vision and profit. The word seal up there uh, couldn't be understood from the original language as, as vindicate or fulfill or kind of prove right. Well, there's a lot of unfulfilled prophecy still. So it just hasn't all been vindicated yet. It hasn't happened. And to anoint the most holy. This seems to indicate the holy of holies being established in the coming millennial kingdom. After the completion of the 70 weeks. And so these things, which are key indications of of what's going on in the 70 weeks, have not all happened yet. But we see fulfillment, what appears to be historical fulfillment, of the first 69 weeks. Which leaves us in a gap. The same gap that we we see clearly uh, between the 40 years of Christ's death and the destruction of the temple has seemed to just continue to extend Because these things have still not been fulfilled yet. We haven't seen this covenant that we'll read about in a moment here. That is a covenant of peace. We still haven't seen it. 
So it seems like we're in this period between the last week uh, or prior to the last week. We'll read very briefly uh, in chapter 11 here about someone that seems to be, that seems like they might be the, the coming prince. But the true coming prince, we won't see his fulfillment until wars, right? That was at the end of verse 26. Until the, the end of the war or until the, the wars and desolations are completed, right? Because verse 27 says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is the beginning of our 70th week. It's when this coming prince, who we've not yet identified, makes a covenant with Israel. Now, it would be fitting that the coming prince is the one described in Daniel 7 as the little horn and in Revelation as the beast or the Antichrist. The things that are described of his actions in those passages line up well with what we'll see of him in chapter 11, starting in verse 36. But now there's a a jump forward in our timeline. In chapter 10, it says the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this is um, sometime uh, after, uh, I believe, about four years, several years is what I said, um, since the, the vision of the 70 weeks. Let's read in chapter 10, verses four through nine. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision but a great terror fell on them so that they fled to hide themselves therefore i was left alone when i saw this great vision and had no strength and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and i retained no strength yet i heard the sound of his words and while i heard the sound of his words i was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground I imagine most of you have a guess as to who the man in linen is here. Uh, It is widely debated, but I I prefer to take the stance that this man is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, paralleled here to how we see him described in Revelation uh, chapter one uh, with his chest girded in gold, uh, clothed in a garment, his head and hair and face are white as snow, his eyes flame like fire, his feet like refined brass and he has a voice like many waters and also very important the response to the sight of this man in daniel it says i retained no strength i was in a deep sleep with my face on the ground and in revelation john says i fell at his feet as dead Verses 10 through 13. Let's read those as well. 
chapter 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, if the man in linen is the Lord Jesus Christ, there are absolutely other heavenly beings present here. It says a hand touched me. It does not say the man in linen touched me. And we see that uh, in verse 13, it says the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Uh, This is not a description of something that would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we, We see the prince of Persia described as something that is stopping this heavenly being, right? So, If it's powerful enough to to stop a heavenly being, it must be supernatural. And if it's evil enough to interrupt the plans of God, then it is apparent that the prince of Persia is described as some sort of demonic spirit uh, working in in the land of Persia and held up this angel that touched Daniel. We know that the Lord Jesus would not be held up in any way. But this does give us a very interesting glimpse into sort of the spirit world and how angels have different ranks. Apparently this angel was stopped by the prince of Persia and he says he he couldn't get through basically until Michael came to help him. And so there's this interesting spiritual battle happening all around us. But what's also important about this passage is that the experience of seeing this man in linen, this, the, the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is terrifying, overwhelming and drains energy and courage. But that is not the purpose or the end result of encountering Christ. Throughout Scripture, we see different uh, um, these reactions to Christ coming or to Christ's appearance. Right? Saul is blinded and driven to his knees. Isaiah is filled with woe and says, I am undone. Uh, John falls at his feet is dead. The, the powerful encounter of Christ is turns out to be the source of strength and energy in the Christian in the Christian life, right? Saul was not left impotent on his knees. Isaiah was not left undone. John was not left as dead. Uh, and Daniel was not left weakened. But no, these experiences are so real and so powerful that they become the source of strength and energy in the Christian life. And we're invited to experience Christ on a very personal basis. And so our encounter with Christ, if we understand what we deserve and what we've done in our life should be terrifying and overwhelming. But the end result should be that our encounter with Christ becomes the source of strength and energy in our life. Uh, The first 35 verses of Daniel 11, we could spend months on those and how how incredibly they seem to align with the events of history in in just such extreme detail, uh, talking about uh, the, the kings that would come for Persia uh, and succeed each other. Um, it seems that Alexander the Great is described here, his death and how four of his generals divide the, the conquered empire to the, to the four winds of heaven, it says in the passage. 
Uh, it describes in great detail various battles and feuds and murder and intrigue and poisoning. It's like a Hollywood movie in, in this section. Uh, but just in great detail to the things that actually happened throughout history. So much so that many critics have, have tried to ascribe uh, a date of writing to this passage that, that comes after the history, which for us should be a great affirmation uh, of faith. Because we know, I mean, the Lord quotes Daniel in, in Matthew 24, I believe. And that is our confirmation, right? If the Lord quotes it, that's good enough for me. Uh, that is our confirmation that this is accurate prophecy. And so the fact that these, these critics would say this is impossible, it's way too precise. I know it's true, so that's good to hear. That this is so precise and so incredibly accurate that it's impossible that it could be written before, but we know that it's, that just means it's impossible that it could be written by anything other than inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 21 uh, probably refer. Let's look at verse 21 real quickly here. Uh, a lot of kings are rising and falling and killing each other and divorcing and all this stuff that's going on. And it says, in his place, in the place of one of the previous kings, shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably. Again, looking at what lines up with the times here of history, it seems that this would be uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who would be a type of the Antichrist, not the Antichrist himself, which we'll look at shortly. But why would he be a type of the Antichrist? Well, we know uh, at the start of that 70th week that he'll come in and make a covenant with many, right? So he comes peaceably but halfway through his week he forcibly takes away the daily sacrifice and he puts up an abomination of desolation well that sounds like we've fulfilled the coming prince right but uh as we'll see uh for several reasons antiochus didn't doesn't really hold a candle to the coming prince and the things that he's going to accomplish and the things that he's going to do uh, history would tell us that Antiochus did take away the daily sacrifice uh, and he offered the blood and broth of a pig on the altar and that he put up an image of Zeus in the holy place. But verse 35 here of chapter 11 says, uh, talks about all these things that this this person, Antiochus, likely is doing. And it says, um, this will be going on until the time of the end. And verse 36 says, then the king shall do according to his own will. Well, it seems that there's a pretty big gap, a pretty big jump in time there between verse 35 and verse 36, because these things described uh, from, I think, 11 through through 35 here about these things that are going to happen that Antiochus is doing are only until the end. They're not the end themselves. And, and this sort of jump forward is very common in prophetic writings. And so if we understand that um, the description we see of the coming prince does not is not fulfilled entirely by uh, Antiochus, then it's not impossible for us to understand that verse 36 now jumps ahead until to the what was just mentioned in 35 until the end of time, then the king shall do according to his own will. What king? That seems to be describing now the coming prince. 
the blasphemy against God, the exaltation of self and the general wickedness of this king, king seemed to far exceed anything Antiochus did. Now, the things we'll see in a moment here uh, give us another reason to think that Antiochus was, again, not uh, th- this coming king outshines him in his wickedness tremendously. Uh, but we know that that's only going to happen until the scripture says until the wrath is accomplished. And that seems to be describing the great tribulation, the period where God is pouring out his wrath and that king will seem to prosper until that time is accomplished. But let's look at this, this coming king, the coming prince here uh, and some of his key characteristics, right? He practices his own will. Now, these are also uh, things that we, we see make, make a distinction between the coming prince and the person described earlier in chapter 11, like again, likely Antiochus, um, things that make a distinction here, but especially even between the evils we see in the world today. There, there's some things here that don't quite line up with what this coming king will be doing, right? He practices his own will. We see that all the time. We do that. He exalts and magnifies himself above every god. You know, we, we do that sometimes in our pride and in, the, in our actions, but... This is an explicit exalting and magnifying of himself. It seems verbally above other gods. He blasphemes the true God. He he speaks specific and direct blasphemies against the God of the Bible. That's something we don't see as much of in our in the leaders we call evil today. Uh, they're not defiling scripture with blasphemies. But the, the more importantly here is that he has no concern for the true God or any other God. Most of the big evils we see in the world today are following a false God or, or, or saying that they're motivated or pushed on by their scripture, by their God. But this coming king, not interested in, in the true God or any other God. And that's very different from Antiochus. Antiochus put up an image of Zeus. In the temple, he put up an image of a god in the temple. But the, the the abomination of desolation that this king seems to put up, probably an image of himself, glorifying himself. He's putting himself above every other god, and that's something we don't see from Antiochus, and we don't see elsewhere. Just wanted to work that in there. We'll know his his end is with the personal return of Jesus Christ, right? Riding in on the white horse. Um, so his his time is is very limited. And lastly, in, in chapter 12, we'll read the first three verses here. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. What time are we talking about? It's the horrible uh, prospering of the coming prince. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even up to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A time that is, is described as worse than anything else that's happened in history after coming Peacefully. Antiochus came peacefully and 
turned out to be very um, unpleasant. But this coming prince is, is described as furiously trying his hand at genocide and he's this is literally just the worst point in history and so michael comes and he stands watch over the people of israel because remember this is about the people of israel um there, there's hope and there's deliverance in here but like like i said this is about daniel's people because we're gone right the church is not here for this um the scripture seems to indicate that we at the start of that week we're going to be gone. We're going to be watching it from a much more secure location, HQ. Um, now, in, in the, the, the last few verses of chapter 12, there is a lot to be guessed at, to be debated. The man in linen comes back and he says these things will go for time, times, and half a time which we could take to mean a year, two years, and a half year, adding up to three and a half years. There's other people that debate that. We talk about the 1290 days. The Jewish year is, is in, in prophecy, is considered to be 360 days. Three and a half years would be 1260 days. So where is the extra 30 coming from? doesn't tell us. It mentions 1355 days. That's the 1290 Plus some more. Where does that come from? We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. A careful study of Daniel will bring an honest reader to the end, uh, quoting Daniel himself in, in chapter 12, verse 8, who said, although I heard, I did not understand. So there is much in Daniel that Daniel doesn't understand. And how do, what is the response to Daniel. Go your way, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. The, the true details, the fulfillment and the meaning of all of these, these things are not given. We can argue them. We can look at history. We can say this probably means this. This says this. It lines up with this. But we don't know. And if we, we say we know for sure... We're arguing with scripture so we can we can put our good guesses forward and we can look and and watch as things become fulfilled and they seem to line up. But we do not know. Scripture tells us we do not know. So prophecies then become like the pieces of a puzzle. And as history unfolds, it is like the image on the box being revealed. Right. We see all these these pieces, these things that are going to occur, but we don't really know how they fit together or what they mean exactly. But as history unfolds. We see the picture more clearly. All of a sudden, these pieces can fit together and we can make sense of them. Verse four here. Says Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Even that verse is. Widely debated. Some have said running to and fro is a reflection of modern transportation and knowledge increasing is a reflection of the information age. Could be. Uh, I'm not the Lord. I don't know. But something that would make sense to me is that as the end times approach and the world gets crazier and crazier and more chaotic, people run to and fro in, in search of truth and in search of understanding what is happening. 
and knowledge increases as prophecy is fulfilled. As history unfolds, we see, oh, that's what's, that's what's occurring right here in Daniel. And so as we look towards uh, the situation where a coming king will make a covenant of peace, we can see how that's being called for, right? The crazier things get, the more chaos that's being uh, introduced into the world, the more we see a need for someone to come in and implement peace, right? So the last two things here will be done in just a minute. Knowing prophecy causes wisdom. Knowing does not mean understanding. Knowing prophecy, knowing the things that are written in the prophets in the book of Daniel causes wisdom, right? Because wisdom now, as, as these things unfold, we, we know the prophecies. We can see things and we can place them into the scripture and we can understand them. It helps us keep our, our placement in time. And keep our confidence in the Lord. So knowing what prophecy says, not necessarily understanding all of it, leads to wisdom. And I'll close with this. Knowing prophecy should cause urgency. We've been in almost a 2,000 year gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. Is there another 2,000 years to go? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. But because we don't know, that should leave us with a sense of tremendous urgency for every command that the Lord has given us. We don't know how much time we have to get ourselves uh, in, in, a, in a relationship with the Lord like the way we want. You know, we'll always, we plan to get better at our relationship with the Lord once we can, when it's when we have more time. We don't know how much time we have. Uh, and maybe the people we know that need to know the Lord, we, we want to tell them about the Lord. It just hasn't been the right time. And now there's, there's truth to that. Sometimes you need to bide your time on, on sharing the word of God. But, but we can't, we can't know when, when this, this time is coming because the scripture has not told us. And so knowing what is coming should be enough to cause extreme urgency in our lives as believers uh, to share the gospel and to walk uh, in the newness of the life that he has given us. Uh, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and then we'll, I'll be back out at 4 o'clock for the barbecue. Dear, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you so much for giving us all of these descriptions of things to come, this prophecy so that we can have a peek behind the scenes and, and, and understand what sort of things are coming. And please help us to be extremely alert to connect the, 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 the events that are happening in the world and the events of history to the descriptions that you've given us so that we can be aware of what's going on and that you would give us comfort and strength knowing that you are in control and that it's all part of your perfect plan and help us to participate in that plan. Uh, even though we have, we, we know you are sovereign and we know that it will go the way you would have it. We, we thank you that you've invited us to play a role in that. Please prompt us and remind us to play a role in that. And again, give us this sense of urgency that we would save souls so that they might not go through this period uh, and that they would be able to leave at the beginning of this 70th week 
and uh, experience your glories with us during that week instead of the, the great wrath that's being poured out. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.